Welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves. And I'm Don Bishop. We're your hosts for Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Barry Reynolds, and he'll be answering your most important questions on fly fishing for peacock bass. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Barry a question, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Barry your most important question. We'll receive your questions immediately, and we're trying to answer as many questions as possible tonight. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 12 hours after the show ends. If you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the broadcast at any time. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted and is the property of the Knowledge Group, Inc., doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Barry Reynolds about fly fishing for those big, beautiful peacock bass. New from the Winston Rod Company for 2007, Boron 2T Rods, new technology, traditional feel. This series combines the feel of our traditional action rods with the lightness and responsiveness of our latest technology. These rods offer the ultimate and delicate presentation while still retaining a good measure of power and reserve thanks to the dynamic properties of our Boron 2 technology. These four-piece rods are available in three through five weight and retail for $625. They are designed and crafted at the Winston Shop in Twin Bridges, Montana, and feature the traditional Winston green finish and Winston unconditional lifetime warranty. Cast the new Winston Boron 2T at the best place possible, your local specialty fly shop. Well, before we introduce Barry tonight, we'd like to let you know about the great gifts we have to give away tonight. And for our drawing night, we'll be giving away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine and a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So you have two chances to win tonight. Now, if you haven't registered yet uh, for the drawing, then you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Barry's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on that link, fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. Our guest tonight is Barry Reynolds. Barry is familiar to many of you who have followed us from our inception, and in fact, he did our second show ever in April of last year. Those outstanding remarks on fly fishing for Northern Pike can be found on our archive, and anyone who has not listened to that show will find that Barry is a remarkable source of an abundance of useful information. We won't repeat all of Barry's biography, but we do need to point out that Barry has successfully fly fished for a host of different species around the world. He's a highly sought speaker at seminars around the country, and he's a certified casting instructor, master fly tire, as well as pro staff member on a number of well-known companies in the fly fishing industry. Barry has authored books on several subjects, including carp and pike, and he has DVDs on these subjects as well. His articles and photography have appeared in numerous fly fishing magazines, and the Barry Reynolds Fly Fishing Journal began its first season this January on Altitude Sports Network Television. You can see more about some of his many projects on his website, barryreynoldsflyfishing.com. Barry has recently returned from a fly fishing expedition specifically aimed at peacock bass, and he's here tonight to tell us about that and to answer your questions about this hard-hitting tropical species. 
Barry, welcome back, and thanks for joining us tonight. Nice to be here. Uh, thanks for having me, Don and Roger. Well, great to have you back, and uh, <laughs> this time I get to talk to you some too, Barry. Last time I missed out, but um, I'll surely take advantage. Well, as much as I enjoy talking to you guys, I think I'd rather be back down in Brazil chasing those big peacocks around. So. Is that right? No, off- huh. no offense. Uh. <laughs> they don't talk back, huh? No, exactly. <laughs> Although they do point out when you're doing things wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very quickly. Very quickly, yes. I suppose. Well, um, you just got back, uh, what, a week or two ago? Uh, it's been about uh, almost a month since we've been. Oh, almost uh, a month now. Okay. Yeah. It goes by quick when you're down there, doesn't it? <laughs> Too quick. Too quick, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, we, it was my uh, fifth trip down to Brazil, and it's just a uh, it's a wonderful area, and obviously a tremendous fishery. But when you get down there, you realize it's not just about the fishing; it's about where you're at, and it's easy to be in awe when you just look around, and uh, it's easy to forget about the fishing sometimes too. As, as crazy as that sounds. Yeah, yeah, I bet that's a pretty incredible country. Well, let's let's get started with, uh, we've got a lot to cover here. We want to talk about the peacock bass itself uh, as a okay. fish and uh, talk about the different locations that people can fish for them and the equipment that you prefer, flies that they, you know, that you're using, presentation techniques, you know, how you fight them, releasing them sure. if it's anything special. And, um, and then let's end up talking about... Um, uh, you know, taking a trip to an exotic place like uh, Brazil, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, sure we'll touch upon that as we go through all these things. But um, you bet. tell us a bit about uh, the peacock bass. How does it get its name in the first place? And, well, the peacock bass gets its name. Uh, first of all, it's not a bass at all. It's a, it's a cichlid. It's one of the members of the cichlid family. There's about 1,600 different species in the cichlid family, and it's just one of those. Uh, one of those fish is uh, very uh, similar to Oscars, like you would find in many home aquariums. And um, but the peacock part came from the um, the word pavon uh, or pavon that uh, loosely translate into peacock, and it's the black spot on the tail of the peacock bass that gives it this name. And the locals in Venezuela uh, actually gave it that name. That was pavon. Yeah, P-A-V-O-N or pavon. Have on. All right. yeah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. <laughs> and, and there are different types of these uh, fish, is that correct? There's five different subspecies of peacock bass um, that's recognized now. And uh, depending on which scientist and which fisherman you talk to, uh, it can range anywhere from as few as three species to as many as 17 different species. The bottom line is there's just not enough common research that's been done on these fish to properly identify exactly what's what. But as it is, uh, the, the, the latest research is indicating that there's five subspecies of peacock bass throughout the world. And when you said uh-huh. cichlid before, uh, I remember those, those in my aquarium as a kid. Yeah. So this is right. that same family. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just like an Oscar. When I was... Um, taking a tubing trip in Belize, I, I looked over the side down this mountain river, and I noticed, I saw a lot of the fish there that I used to have in my aquarium. It's kind of <laughs> unusual, but, you know, it's kind of out of sorts, you know. And, oh, yeah, well, and that's the same thing we find when we go to fish the rivers in Brazil is you get in the back ends of these lagoons and the slower stretches of the rivers, and you look over, and it's just like looking in a, a tropical fish tank. You see freshwater angelfish. 
um, neon tetras, cardinal tetras, uh, just a wide variety of tropical fish. It just, it's mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. And they occupy freshwater only, do they, the peacock bass? Yes, they don't tolerate saltwater at all. So they're very similar to what you would experience, uh, like uh, with a largemouth bass. They can be fine in areas where the where freshwater and the saltwater mix, but they, the salinity levels have to be very low. What, what are the differences between the, the, the five species? Does it have to do with size, coloring? Color, coloration patterns where they're where they're found, um, but the the biggest one that everybody tastes around. Um, is called a tucanare um, or a, a black bard or a spotted, um, and they go through different color phases. But those are the fish that get the biggest. Those are the ones that get up into the 20 to 25, and the world record's 27 pounds. Um, and those are the ones that hit like a ton of bricks and will rip the rod out of your hand if you're not paying attention. And that's the big one that everybody goes and chases around. You also find um, some variations in uh, what they call butterfly peacock. And it's a different uh, butterfly peacock down in South America is different than what you would, uh, what people are calling a butterfly peacock in Florida, for example. Those are two different uh, species of peacocks. And uh, there's another one called a royal peacock, and that's that's found strictly in, uh, found in the Orinoco River drainage uh, in parts of Venezuela. And it's a fast water fish and doesn't get nearly as big. And um, you know th those fish reach. Um, like a butterfly can reach weights up to about 12 pounds, and the royal peacock can reach weight up to about seven or eight pounds. Now, where, but, where all are these distributed uh, throughout uh, tropical portions of the world? Where their natural range is, is South America along the equator. Okay, so uh, places like Brazil, Venezuela, Peru, um, Suriname, uh, Guyana, French Guyana. Those areas all have natural populations of, of uh, peacock bass. Since that time and since their popularity has is, is grown, they've been introduced to places like Florida, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Panama, and even some, uh, I know there's a few more countries in, in Central America that I'm now hearing that they're being stocked into those waters. Biggest thing with the peacocks is they're very, very temperature sensitive. So it makes it hard to transplant them. And, and the, are there things besides the temperature sensitivity that distinguish the different subspecies? Uh, are there places that one can survive and another can't? Well, like the, um, the, the Florida strain of butterflies that they have there, they, that's the, the, the research they did on that found that fish could tolerate water temperatures as low as about 65 degrees. Once you start to get much below that, you start to experience winter kill. Uh, the other forms of the peacocks, the the big um, um, barred peacocks and the um, those uh, the royal peacock and those can't take water temperatures that low. So uh, the lower end of their tolerance is about 72 or 73 degrees. And and you know uh, the Florida Wildlife uh, Commission they they experimented a lot with different uh, peacock bass before they brought them in and, and found all these things out. And and as a result, they've been successful where where uh, in the areas that they put them into. The biggest thing is water temperatures, what they can tolerate. I'm not surprised that only certain fish can survive in Florida because I know we all live in fear of that dreaded Florida winter. <laughs> exactly. And they do suffer winter kills down there. Um, when, Like I said, when the water temperatures drop much 
you know, into the low 60s or right around 60 degrees, they do get some partial winter kills on these fish down there. So it just gives you an idea of how temperature sensitive these fish are. Uh, the rivers and stuff that we fish in Brazil typically are 85 to 88 degrees. Well, that uh, temperature, uh, and when we're talking Florida, we're not talking that, uh, that peacocks are all over Florida. We're talking about very specific area, right? Yeah, they're, they're very limited because of uh, their uh, because of the water temperature sensitivity. Uh, basically, they're found around the Miami Fort Lauderdale area and uh, the canals there. There's about 330 miles of canals that the uh, peacocks inhabit down there. Uh, they were first stocked back in I want to say 1984, and there's uh, they, they've uh, and they stocked through '87. They planted 20,000 fish. And um, they have since become self-sustaining, so they don't even have to stock them anymore. So it's it's been a huge success down there, and I know it's a huge, huge uh, uh, financial draw for people to come down there and fish for the peacocks in Florida. So, how long do they live, and how big do they uh, do? Some of the smaller <laughs> get that you you hear, you've you've mentioned some of them, but aren't there some even smaller? Well, on 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 average, these uh, the butterflies um, uh, will typically range right around three or four pounds, and a big fish would be six, seven, eight pounds. And you start pushing world record size around the ten to twelve pound mark. Um, so, um, as far as their average length of life goes, again, you can find research that would take it anywhere from as little as five years to as long as fifteen to twenty years. So there's there's still a lot of research left to be done on these fish because it just hasn't become that popular until the last, you know, 10 years or so when there's been a real boom on it. And Barry, why don't you tell us about why they were originally brought into Florida because we hear stories about Florida, you know, having trouble with um, exotic species in the canals. I mean, right. it seems to be in there. But, but why were they brought in? They were basically they were brought in to control uh, non-native invasive species such as tilapia, which people would uh, inadvertently they'd they'd buy for their aquariums or whatnot, and then when they didn't want them anymore, they just dump them in the canals, and it it just shows you how little interference it takes to really upset a, a fishery, and. Um, uh, there was a lot of concern when they brought the, the peacocks in, like you said, having the same problem. But with their temperature sensitivity, um, it kind of keeps them in check and keeps them limited in where they're at. Are, are peacocks affected by things like uh, weather and, you know, we hear about the, the rainforest and the flooding and that sort of thing that can occur in the Amazon country? And what, what effect does well, that have on these fish? Well, um, you know, Large amounts of water obviously are going to displace them. Um, most people avoid South America during the rainy season because of that. Uh, the water, you know, the river levels down there, for example, can fluctuate as much as 40 vertical feet from the dry season to the rainy season. So when it does come up that high, the water floods back into these uh, lagoons and uh, out over the, uh, the, the forest itself. And these fish, the bait fish, obviously take advantage of this new hiding grounds and the peacocks follow them back up into the real thick cover. And as you can imagine, it's a real nightmare to fish for them. So the fishing's not very good because they're so hard to get at. Mm -hmm. But uh, we typically like to fish during low water times of the year or their dry seasons um, when the rivers recede back within their banks. Um, the lagoons in some cases actually will become landlocked and we'll have to portage boats back into these areas. 
um, to to chase these fish down, and they they become even more aggressive. It's a super aggressive fish to begin with, but when you start getting limited space and and food sources become even more limited, they become even that much more aggressive. But um, cloudy days, you know, from weather and things like that, uh, typically uh, produce better fishing as long as you don't have a ton of rain. And, um, you know, it can rain there. We had one rain shower. We probably dumped six inches in less than an hour. The beautiful thing is, is when it rains like that, you get a chance to take a shower. <laughs> were they successful in, in controlling some of these exotic species that the peacocks were introduced for? They've, they've done a great job on them. They've really knocked the numbers down. And, um, like I said, that is probably one of the most successful stories you'll hear of a uh, – non-native fish being introduced to do a job like it was uh, brought in to do, and and to do that kind of job without it really intruding on any of the other uh, sport fishing um, is just it's a tremendous success story down there in Florida with those fish. We have a, a question here from Raymond in uh, Mountjoy, Pennsylvania. And he wants to know if there are catchable amounts of peacock bass in Florida, uh, enough to make a trip worthwhile down there just for that. And I think you just had a friend that went down there. and, and I did. And an average day down there uh, during the right time of year, again, usually um, about right about now, you can go out and have, you know, 20, 30, 40 fish days. So definitely uh, catchable numbers. Uh, but with the canals and, and the amount of territory you have to cover, it really pays to hire a guide down there. Are they mostly fishing from boats down there? Right. Yes, uh, quite a bit, yeah. You know, there's some people, and, and I, I've done it a few times myself where you drive, where you can get access to some of the canals and you can hop out and fish for them. But, um, no, you, you're better off, like I said, if, if you go to one of the local tackle shops down there and, and at least inquire, if not even hire a guide for at least a half a day to go out and learn a little bit about the area because, um, you know, it's a lot of water to cover. I did notice uh, going out on the web and if you go out there and search for, uh, peacock bass in Florida, you'll find some some guide services that specialize in in peacock bass. So right, and there's some that even specialize in fly fishing for them. So uh, there's plenty of information out there. And, and um, like I said, uh, you know, on any trip, whether you're fishing, you know, in the states or traveling down to South America, you definitely want to do your research and find the best time of years and and find the guides that are experienced at the type of fishing you want to do. What time of year do they spawn, and do they lay eggs, or do they have bear live young? Okay. Um, they're substrate spawners, so they can spawn multiple times, and typically do. They'll spawn more than once during the course of a season. Huh. Um, they are egg layers, and um, it's possible to go on these rivers um, at any time and find spawning peacocks. But as a rule of thumb, we, we tend to find the fish – usually spawning or close to the spawn um, in that um, January, February, March window. Okay. But, again, it's it's one of those <laughs> variables with a fish that can spawn any time, any place, and, um, at, uh, at, you know, and, and can do it more than once during the course of the season. So uh, in all likelihood, at just about any time you go down there, you're likely to find some spawning peacocks. Very interesting fish. Let's let's take uh, just a real quick break here. Uh, when we return, we'll be talking more with Barry Reynolds about fly fishing for exotic peacock bass. Front Range Angler is a full-service fly shop located in Boulder, Colorado, 
provides premium tackle and comprehensive instruction and guide services to fly fishers across the country. In business for over 25 years and with a staff that averages 20 years of experience, they will give you the straight story on gear, places to fish, flies, and techniques. They publish a monthly newsletter that is one of the most informative and insightful electronic magazines in the industry. Find out more about this premier shop by logging on to their website at www.frontrangeanglers.com. That's www.frontrangeanglers.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Barry Reynolds about fly fishing for peacock bass. If you'd like to ask Barry a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Barry your most important question. We'll be receiving your questions promptly, and we're trying to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Uh, Barry, before we move uh, on into uh, more about the, the peacocks, Tell me about this uh, television venture that you launched in January. <laughs> well, it turned out to be a lot more work than I ever ever thought it would be, but don't most projects end up that way? <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah. No, it was um, for the longest time we've been wanting to uh, to take a, a stab at it, so to speak, and, uh, and do a TV show that is it's not it's not your typical fishing show. Uh, you won't see us standing there talking or preaching to the camera a lot, uh, but more it's meant to show you the action uh, of the fishing, the beauty of the surroundings, and uh, we like to, I, I, I love to put really good music behind it, and um, also just mix in a little bit of entertainment value to it as well as far as uh, education. But uh, this, we just concluded our first season, um, and we traveled uh, from doing a carp show on the South Platte River in downtown Denver to chasing sailfish in Guatemala and peacock bass in Brazil and tarpon in Belize. So there's no species that we're not going to go out and tackle, and uh, we're getting ready to start filming Season 2 here in about three weeks. Are any of these going to be available on DVDs, uh, Barry? Um, not immediately. What we're going to do, Roger, is we're going to release a, a new DVD um, here probably the first part of September. It's called Getting Ripped, and uh, it's just a flat-out fun DVD that uh, will cover a lot of these species that we chased in the first season. So uh, kind of a compilation of, of every place that we went and all the different species we got to chase around and um, you know, to go out and chase some of these fish that we've been given the opportunity to go fish for and capture it on film, uh, it's pretty cool stuff. Let's, uh, we've talked about Florida quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. What other places, does, you mentioned Central America and South America, but I've also heard about them uh, living in Hawaii as well. Is that yeah, there's there's viable populations on um, Kauai and also on Oahu. And uh, there are, again, there's there's guides uh, set up there that uh, that will take you out and and have it uh, really uh, fine tuned. And but there is some good uh, peacock bass fishing in in Hawaii as well, and they're catching some really nice fish. And um, I have never done it myself, nor talked to anybody that's done it. But I, I've obviously I do a lot of research and, and check these things out all the time, and uh, some beautiful beautiful fish that come out of the waters there. Now, were they transplants, too? Um, yes. They, they weren't yep. native? Okay. No, non-native. Like I said, the only place that they're native to is 
um, uh, equatorial South America, so along that equator line through South America is the only places they're native to. And then uh, now I have a question from JL in Paonia, Colorado. It looks to me like he wants to get to the tropics. He's wondering about uh, fly fishing for peacocks in Singapore or in that region. Are, are you aware if that's uh, possible? Um, I've I've heard rumors of them messing around with peacocks over there and trying to uh, stock some of the local lakes with them. I don't know the success of it, and to be honest with you, I don't know enough about it that I would say yay or nay to something like that. Mm. But I had I had heard rumors that they were playing around with uh, trying to get peacock bass over there. We probably should mention a website. There's there's a peacock bass association, and they're their website is www.peacockbassassociation.com. I have another question, Barry, from Stan Perry out in San Diego, wondering where specifically in Florida that you'd recommend looking into peacocks. Well, again, you got to concentrate in the Miami-Fort Lauderdale area, and there's a series of canals down there. And the best thing they could do is go to floridafisheries.com, and, and they actually have brochures that will tell you the canals and um, and whatnot. And there's also some private lakes down there, too, that some of these uh, tackle shops and these local guides have access to as well um, on top of these canals. But uh, there's there's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 or 30 different canals that have peacock bass in them down there. And like I said, for the first first time going down, I'd probably be real tempted at very least to stop into some of the local shops and talk to them, or to hire a guide for half a day if if they're if they're not wanting to use a guide to, for the whole trip. But there's 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 a lot of a lot of canals uh, right around the Miami Fort Lauderdale area that are, are good bets for peacock bass in Florida. I heard there was some good uh, peacock bass fishing right in the waters underneath the. Uh the airspace where you land at uh, Miami International. The Aerojet Canal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's one of them. Go far from the plane to get started. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, they, and like I said, they've been stocked into a few lakes, um, I think, in, in, uh, as far as some of these private fisheries go. But for the most part, uh, you're chasing them down in these canals. But some of these canals are the size of a small lake, so as far as their width goes. Well, we had another question, Don, in here from uh, Steve K. I don't know where. He's in West Central Florida. He wants to know where he can fish for peacocks, what is the closest area. And he does most of his weight, fishing, wading, and kayaking with mm -hmm. his fishing club. But that sounds West Central. That sounds like over there, Naples, Fort Myers, and, and that's too far north, isn't yeah. it? Yes. So, like I said, the the best thing they can do um, is, as far as that stuff goes, um, to find out, you know, the true specifics is to, to to either go on to that Florida Fisheries website or to contact a few of the shops down there, um, because there is a there's a tremendous amount of canals and obviously um, they're not all going to hold peacocks at, uh, um, throughout the entire canal, so they're they're going to have to do some research and talk to some of the locals. Uh, to get all that information, that fish it on a regular basis. Like I said, I've been down and uh, I fished the canals in Florida two days, and that, that, that's about the, the extent of my experience on the Florida canals. David Gower uh, in Kentucky is uh, wondering if you could maybe provide a few specifics, uh, maybe some destinations in South or Central America that uh, might be recommended. 
Well, the biggest thing they got to do, Don, is the the biggest thing they got to figure out is, you know, how comfortable do they want to be? There's a lot of options when you go down there. Um, basically, the three options you look at when you travel down there is to either fish from a land-based camp um, or a lodge or a mobile camp uh, via a houseboat or there's there's what they call a tent or barge camp system that they use down there as well. Uh, the lower stretches of the rivers are getting pretty well hammered. I mean, there's a lot of people going down there, and um, there's a lot of lodges in operation. So I always opt to get as far away from as much traffic as I can. And what I've been doing is I've been going with a, uh, through a company called Rod and Gun, and, and um, they work with a company down there called River Plate Anglers, and they have access to 27 rivers um, in Brazil. And, uh, again, uh, they either offer houseboat or these mobile barge camps. But these mobile barge camps allow you to get above the barriers in the river systems like waterfalls and things like that and get up where these houseboats can't get to. So we're getting, you know, two, 300 miles inside the jungle mm. and uh, basically having the river to ourselves and not having to fight with a lot of different people. But, again, like any trip, I always recommend people do a, a tremendous amount of research, whether it's for pike or peacock bass or whatever it happens to be. Do the kind of research. Understand, um, you know, what they're capable of and what they're capable of, of, of taking or withstanding, you know. you're going Because when you get into some of these, these mobile camps and get way up in there, you're a long way away from anywhere. And, um, you know, if you don't do with well with heat or humidity or um, – you know, whatever it might happen to be, um, you're you're pretty much out of luck as far as trying to get back without paying a three or four thousand dollar bill to have a plane fly you back out of there. Well, before we, uh, I'd like to get delve deeper into your your adventure down there. But before we do that, can we um, talk more about um, your preparation and so forth, like equipment, rods, reels, line? Uh, can you? Can you tell us what you use for the peacocks there? Sure. Um, the thing that most people and that I've had a lot of people ask me, are, are they as strong as people say they are and or that they've read about? And without a doubt, it is probably one of the strongest fish you will catch in freshwater, period, the end. They hit like a freight train, and they are capable of, you know, ripping off 100, 150 yards of backing off your reel. So. Uh, it's a big, strong fish, uh, especially when you start getting into the high teens and into the low 20s. These fish are serious fish, and, and for that, it takes serious equipment. So as far as the rods go, I'm typically using a 9 or a 10-weight rod, which um, the first time I went down there many moons ago, uh, I was told to take an 11-weight, and you, you don't need that kind of a rod, but you do need, like I said, a, a rod with some with some serious backbone, so like a 9 or a 10-weight rod. Your reel should have a good drag system on it. If you do not have a drag system on your reel, you're, it's not a good idea <laughs> because you'll be, after that first strong run and that initial hit, you look down and just find a mess of fly line and everything else down there. Um, so a reel with a, a good backing or um, a good drag system is, is really important. And I always take spare spools or spare reels, um, obviously, because you're in the, you know, again, you're in the middle of the jungle. There isn't a fly shop just right down around the corner that you can stop and get something fixed or repaired. So I always double up on my equipment. I take at least two reels with me. Uh, I usually take three or four rods. And um, as far as fly lines go, I go prepared to be able to cover from the surface down to say 15 or 18 feet in depth so I usually carry a floating line 
a 10-foot sink tip and then a 24-foot sink tip or a full sinking line to be able to cover the water column from top to bottom because these fish, uh, one day they may be up real shallow and the next day they may be out in deeper water holding tight to the bottom. So yeah, they're not always uh, aggressive and, and really on the bite. Uh, they're, they're like any other fish. They're on and off. Right, exactly. A lot of times you're searching for them. Um, typically early mornings and, and late afternoons are going to be your best bites um, during that low light period. Or, again, if you get a cloudy day or a showery day, they can be on a bite, you know, throughout the entire day. But as a rule of thumb, it's going to be first thing in the morning and then again later in the afternoon. And you'll get the occasional blow-ups. These fish love to uh, – you usually see them travel in real loose packs, and they'll school up bait fish and blow through them. And, and when that happens, it, it's just – it's an amazing sight that you have to see once or twice <laughs> to really appreciate it. But it's – I kid you not, it's, it's just like all hell's breaking loose and a bomb went off in the lake, and you got, you know, three or four 20-pound peacock chasing 20-inch bait fish out of the water. And in some cases, they'll chase them right up on the shore, and it's a pretty amazing sight. That sounds like an experience we had last year with pike uh, chasing bait fish up against the bank. And <laughs> throw your lure in, the, the, the bait fish would come out like popcorn out of the water, you know, just explode out of the water because they thought something was attacking them, so they'd all jump in the air. Well, what's amazing is it's, it's, it's so dead calm and quiet, especially when you get back into some of these lagoons. And you're searching, and the, the butterfly peacocks you can catch quite a few of, okay? And, and they're not overly difficult, and there's numbers of them. And that's going to make up the bulk of your catch. But what people are down there to do is to catch these bigger bard or the tucanari. And those are the ones they're chasing. But you'll be sitting there, and you're, you're picking up, you know, um, three and four and five-pound butterflies on a fairly consistent basis. And like I said, you're sitting there laughing. You're having a good time. The whole time, though, you're, you keep, you're waiting for that next fish, and about that time, like I said, just all heck breaks loose, you know, 100 yards away from you, and you see all these bait fish shooting three, four, five feet out of the water, and then you see these uh, 15 to 25-pound peacocks blowing completely out of the water after them. <laughs> about that time, you forget how to do everything. You can't cast, you can't, you can't stand, you can't do anything. And uh, just just a, it's a it's an amazing fish and and like I said, it's something I think most people need to try and experience at least once um, in their fishing. Yeah, I had a follow up on the the lines. Uh, it sounded like you're using top water and then intermediate and sinking tip or, or something. But but I imagine it has to be different line than you're using for pike up here because of the <laughs> temperature of the water and so forth. What what do you use specifically there? Yeah, that, it's a great point, Roger. Uh, these lines are got tropical coatings on them, so they're they're like your saltwater lines, uh, so they can withstand the heat um, just from the sun and the water itself. Like I mentioned before, you know the water temperatures are, you know, in the mid 80s, and if you tried to fish a cold water line down there, it'd be like gum in about an hour, and uh, obviously it won't cast real well. It'd be like trying to throw a piece of spaghetti. And uh, these tropical coatings um, hold up real well down in, in, in these areas, and they stay rigid, uh, and they stay slick. You do need to take, you know, a line cleaner and dressing with you and clean and dress these lines every day uh, before you go out. Um, but, um, again, the tropical coatings, the saltwater-type lines, don't go down there with a cold-water line or a trout line or even uh, some of the freshwater bass lines. You really need a saltwater tropical coating on these lines uh, 
for it to stand up, especially since most of these trips are seven days long. I can guarantee you what that fly line is going to look and cast like after about a day. Uh, in terms of the equipment, uh, this might uh, fall into the question that W.A. Newsom sent uh, from Bremerton, Washington. Uh, do you use a, a bite tippet, heavy bite tippet? Do they have teeth? Do you use wire? What's what's the, the terminal gear setup? They don't have – they have teeth, but they're, it's real fine. It's like sandpaper. Like It's uh, very similar to what you'd see with a largemouth bass. And, and – um, uh, it's it's a very fine uh, sandpaper texture to it, but in the course of a largemouth bass, you can lip grab those fish and, and do it on a regular basis, and it's, it's you're not going your thumb and is not going to be any worse for wear. But on the other hand, with peacock bass, uh, again, it's like sandpaper, but this time it's like 60 grit sandpaper, so it's very rough and very abrasive, and they'll take you down to you'll be bleeding in no time and have big. Uh, scrapes and cuts on your in your your uh, thumb in no time, but um, we don't use steel leader. You don't you don't need to go to that extreme. You just uh, what we typically use is somewhere in that 30 to 35 pound range of uh, uh, hard mono that saltwater type leader, and we just use a level section of that. They're not leader shy by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm typically using about six to seven foot of 30 to 35 pound. Uh, Hard mono. Um, we played around with the fluorocarbons this year, and they were uh, we did not do well with fluorocarbon at all. Uh, we had fish breaking it on a regular basis, and I was using 39 pound fluoro. Wow! And they were going surprised. they were going through that like thread. Well, that's impressive. <laughs> they're they're an impressive fish. To, to, to say the least, but um, like I said, once we switch back over to the hard saltwater mono, uh, no problems whatsoever. You need to be aware of it, and after you catch a few fish, you know, you always got to check it. And um, you, you're going to have bigger problems from bite-off from other species of fish than you will from the peacock. Well, before we move on into flies and, and subjects like that, let's take a very brief break. When we return, Barry will be answering more of your questions about fly fishing for peacock bass. Have you ever dreamed about the classic actions of bamboo fly rods? Did you know that it's possible for you to make your own bamboo fly rods? With the help of Power Fibers Online Magazine, you can do just that. Power Fibers is a magazine dedicated to making bamboo fly rods and telling the stories about bamboo through the ages. From rod making techniques to stories about fishing bamboo rods to rod maker profiles to classic tapers, Power Fibers has it all. Visit our website at www.powerfibers.com. That's www.powerfibers.com for more information. We hope to hear from you soon. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Barry Reynolds about fly fishing for peacock bass. If you'd like to send a question to Barry, just go to our homepage, askaboutflyfishing.com. Click on the link below the description of the show where it says click here to ask Barry your most important question. We'll receive those questions promptly, and we're moving right through them to get to as many as possible tonight. Well, Barry, before we talk about uh, flies, perhaps we should talk just a little bit about what it is that peacock bass eat. <laughs> a little bit of everything. <laughs> they um, basically they'll they'll feed on a variety of different um, tropical fishes down there that can range. Um, on this most recent trip, we saw them chasing schools of um, a fish called a chichora, which is like a freshwater barracuda. And these things can be anywhere from 
10 inches long to 20, 25 inches long. Uh, we saw them uh, chasing schools of a fish down there called Baikuda, which is um, it, almost like a needle-type fish, um, very long, slender fish. And then they'll eat uh, the tetras because the tetras we see at home in, in these tropical aquariums are usually, what, about an inch, inch and a half long. Uh, a lot of these tetras down in the in the wild actually get to be about four and a half to six inches long, and um, they're feeding on on those soft uh, finned and soft rayed fishes like that down there, and they do feed on each other on occasion. Um, and there's another fish that uh, we find them to be fond of, and it's a fish that you catch on a regular basis while you're down there fishing for them, called a jacunda, which is again another cichlid. Um, some people might know it as uh, by another name called pike cichlid which is, again, another fish that is highly sought after for um, uh, people that do a lot of uh, aquarium keeping and, and uh, keeping of tropical fish. So again, they'll feed on a wide variety of bait fish down there, and bait fish is a loose term down there because if you're not bigger than the fish chasing you around, you're bait. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, it just... So a trophy uh, they, in another species is, could be bait for, for the peacock, huh? Yeah. Well, the, the the first day on our trip down there this year, I was, we were catching jacunda, and they're just absolutely beautifully colored fish. They got dusty rows down their sides and big black spots, and almost a sailfish uh, type fin on their back that goes the length of their body. And and I'm sitting there, and I'm pulling one in, and we're sitting there uh, talking and admiring how beautiful a fish they are. And I had about a 20 pound peacock come up and just inhale it. So inhale the fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're admiring. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> It'll wake you up in a hurry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sounds like saltwater fishing there. You know. It's it's a it's definitely an uh, an eat or be eaten world down there. So, but um, uh, just like I said, um, uh, they'll feed on just about everything, including one another, from time to time. So, but their preferences tend to be um, like roaches. Um, um, which is again another tropical fish that you'll see in many aquariums, um, and and fish like that, uh, which kind of looks almost like a shad, uh, depending on what color and what species they they have available in that river system. So, um, but basically they 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 key into the the other fish and they go at it uh, great guns. Any uh, do they feed on any kind of crabs or shrimp? Um, I, not that I'm aware of. Uh, like I said, I have not seen any evidence of any of that type of stuff. I would imagine the occasional lizard trying to swim across the lagoon or lake would be fair game, um, and uh, even small caiman. <laughs> I can't think of much that would uh, swim across the river down there and survive if there was anything around that could eat it. Mean world down there, yeah. It is, and you know, and you catch so many different species of fish when you're down there chasing uh, peacocks uh, around, and you just never know what you're going to pull up. We've caught red-tailed cats on flies down there, uh, and they get huge. Some of the guys like to go out and spend an afternoon chasing the big catfish around and catch 80, 90, 100-pound catfish. Um, uh, piranha, uh, we catch lots of piranha down there. Um, all the different species, black piranha get up five, six pounds. It's like catching a bluegill with tiger's teeth and um, I mean, just you you can't imagine the fish you're going to pull in on the next cast. It could be a you know a pound or a pound and a half Oscar. <laughs> I'll be darned. And they all hit hard. 
<laughs> and then and then one of the other fish that we catch that's a lot of fun is the arowana, and it's a long, um, snaky eel-like looking fish. It's it's very silver, um, got some pinks and blues in it, and just a beautiful fish and highly acrobatic. They they'll jump you know six or seven feet across the water and and uh, just a, a lot of fun. Like I said, you just never know what you're going to pull in when you're down there. Yeah, and the the arowanas are prehistoric. Mm-hmm. They're quite a fish. Well, they have another another fish down there called a, and I'm terrible with some of these names. Um, it's like um, called a rapapaku, and uh, it, just depending on the region, and that's the real prehistoric one that can obtain lengths of 10 feet and weigh uh, you know upwards of 300 pounds or more. And it's an obligatory air breather. And if you get on the right river system, you can actually see these things coming up and gulping air and going back down. And uh, we've actually had them come up and take a peacock bass off the off the line on you. I had one guy almost get spooled by a fish that was probably in that 150 to 180 pound range. Holy so, like God. I said, <laughs> when you set the hook there, hang on because you don't know what you're in for. Well, uh, well. Case Tarasca in Pennsylvania is going right for the heart of the matter. What are the best types of flies to use for peacock bass? I have had my best success with big uh, bait fish patterns, so big uh, subsurface streamers that I can fish just below the surface, and then if I want to, I can go onto a sink tip or a full sinking line in a shorter length and, and fish them down deeper. Um, Typically, uh, we throw bunny flies. Uh, I've got a new one out called a Gen X bunny, which has got a big uh, webby slopping collar in place of the rabbit collar, so it helps lighten it up a little bit. And then about a six and a half inch rabbit strip tail with lots of flash. Uh, we've done really good on those, uh, particularly on big fish. Uh, flash tail whistlers, we do really well on. These flies are all tied on three odd hooks and will range anywhere from you know, five inches in length upwards to eight, eight and a half inches in length. Another pattern, some of, some of your uh, saltwater bait fish patterns work really well. We've had a lot of success with uh, Skokes Mushmouth, which is, a, again, an, a big saltwater uh, bait fish pattern. Uh, oversized deceivers uh, work well. Um, and then uh, if we need to go down and fish deeper, we go uh, to uh, Clouser Half and Half. One of the things that is, is real important when you're picking your patterns is the color selections tend to be real, real important. And most of the rivers we do really well with uh, red and whites, red and yellows, uh, chartreuse and white. And then some of the clearer rivers we do, we can do pretty good with a blue and white combination. But colors seem to be fairly important to these fish down there, as does a lot of flash in the flies. Now, a lot of these flies you just talked about, uh, some of them sounded like your pike flies. <laughs> the first time I went down there, that's what I went down there with, was all my pike flies. I figured uh, from one big aggressive critter to the next uh, that's, uh, you know, predominantly a fish eater, it made sense that uh, any flies that mimicked or imitated a, a bait fish pattern in one form or another had to do really well. And um, as, as a result, when we went down there, the hardest problem is is when you get into areas that are loaded with piranhas, um, you're going to go through flies because they'll attack a rabbit fly like it's live. And um, you, you, you're stripping your fly in and you get that telltale tap, 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 and you know it's a piranha. And you just kind of cringe and you look out on the surface and you see a 
$6 fly chopped in a million pieces floating on the surface out in front of you, and you pull it in, and there's literally nothing left but the epoxy head. Wow. So you, the one thing they, that I will suggest and strongly urge is you go down with plenty of flies. And when I say that, I'm not talking about taking a couple dozen. I'm talking about taking four or five or even six dozen flies with you. Because I've had days where I can go through 12 to 15 flies and nothing flat. I can do that in 12 consecutive casts. <laughs> do you, uh, did you change anything the, the subsequent times when you went down as far as uh, durability then and stay away from certain materials and use other materials? Well, if obviously synthetic flies uh, tend to stand up better, but you do lose some of the natural movement that you would get from feathers and fur uh, on your fly pattern. So there's always a, a give and take scenario there, but they are considerably more durable. What we tried to do, is, and what I did with the the uh, like the Gen X bunny, for example, is, is we added some silicone to the tail to beef it up a little bit and still allow it to be somewhat flexible, and. Um, um, like the the big slopping collar, what I did is we when we're palmering the the slopping on the the, the front of the hook, um, well I'll take the thread and I'll wrap back over the vein of the hackle or the stem, and and protect that and cover that with a good coat of epoxy, and that just leaves uh, the barbels you know uh, protruding out, and they can chew on those all they want and really don't do a lot of damage to it so. Uh, we, we've made minor adjustments. The bottom line is if, uh, is if once a toothy fish down there gets a hold of your fly, you're in real dire straits of losing that fly or just getting your hook back if you're lucky. Well, you, you mentioned the size of the flies and that you've tried to lighten up the, some of the bunny patterns and that sort of thing. Are, are there any tricks that you could, uh, you could give the audience in terms of, of casting a big bulky uh, fly with a lot of wind resistance? The first thing is 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 we try and use synthetics where we can to lighten up the pattern. So, um, you know, that's one thing, obviously, before you even start casting a fly that you can do. Um, but if, if if you're in a case where you're throwing a big, wet, heavy fly, the, 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 the best thing I can tell people is, that first of all, you got to cut down on your false casting. I've seen guys out there waving, you know, um, a seven or eight inch money fly around like they're getting ready to present a royal coachman to rising trout and you don't need to do that you know i want the fly to hit the water and i want it to hit it hard and get attention of fish from a distance um so minimize your false casting and um, double haul is very important and um, it should only take one or two false casts to be able to you don't have to cast the length of a football field if you can throw 30 or 40 feet you can cover the water that you need to to be effective so don't you know you don't have to go down there and try and make 80 and 90 foot casts and try and impress you know your buddy um, cut down your, your the distance that you're trying to, to cast the fly and minimize uh, your false casting and uh, that alone is going to allow you to cast a fly like that all day long as opposed to you know the alternative, and that's sitting there trying to false cast that thing ten times, and eventually hooking your guide or your buddy or hitting them in the head with a fly that weighs about a pound when it's soaking wet. So, sure. um, that that's that's the best bit of information I can give you. The, the second thing that will help a lot is again using a pro, the proper fly line down there. That is, you know, that's going to be very shootable. Um, so it's it's very important that you keep the fly lines clean and you have those tropical coated fly lines. Do you ever? Uh 
go up on, on uh, line weights, like with your 10-weight rod, uh, use an 11-weight line or something like that? I don't find it necessary, to be honest with you, Don. Um, if 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 they'll do those those few little things, it's going to help them quite a bit and really cut down on the fatigue that they're going to have with their casting arm. Um, and so if they're the other thing is if if they're in the front of the boat instead of trying to carry that cast directly overhead if you're the fisherman in the middle if you're in the front drop it down and go three quarters uh, sidearm with the cast and come back over the top on the on the forward stroke but on the back stroke come out to the side so you're almost doing like a, a semi half circle cast mm -hmm. um, you know when you're throwing these great big flies you got to find ways to to make it easier. And uh, and as stress free on your shoulder and your casting arm as you can to get through seven days of it, and, and just little things like that will help. Well, leave it to a guide. Robert Jasper's down in Florida wants to know what's your one favorite fly for peacock bass. <laughs> That's not a fair question. Depends on what's catching them that trip. <laughs> um, Whatever just caught the largest last fish, right? Exactly. I, favorite fly. <laughs> I've caught my biggest peacock on the Gen X. Uh, I've caught the biggest number of big fish on flashtail whistlers. How's that? Okay. Um, That's pretty close, huh? Yeah. So if I narrowed it down to two flies that I had to take with me, those are the two flies I'd have with me. You basically just answered this guy's question, but I have to read this because uh, it's a bit unusual. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Michael Johnson in Myrtle Beach, El Salvador. And he said, what would be the best type of artificial lure to use for these large fighting bass uh, that he has there in Lake Ilopango, El Salvador? So the locals there even spearfish for them. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it looks like he's setting up a, um, a guide service down there for these and just kind of opening up. So it sounds like there's probably a lot of areas mm -hmm. out there that are undiscovered or just, just emerging as far as uh, fisheries for Oh yeah, and it continues to grow, and there's more and more areas, like I said, that are that are experimenting with them and, and seeing if they can transplant them because it's 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 a it's a highly desirable sport fish that uh, um, you know obviously it's pulling a lot of people down to South America and Florida and uh, Hawaii and um, to to go down and chase and um, you know people are rightfully so wanting to get on it, but I did some checking and and the the bass that he's referring to is actually not a peacock bass down there. It's called a gopodi, and it's um, again another member of the cichlid family. So similar. That uh, it's similar, absolutely, and again the same family of fish, just uh, different species. And um, but um, a lot of the guys throwing conventional gear um, are throwing big wood choppers. And these these can be you know upwards of 18 inches long with two big propellers on them, and they sound like a broken down Yamaha coming through the water. <laughs> and the first time the first time I went and I was fishing with a friend of mine in the boat, and he was throwing a bait caster, and I was fly fishing. And the first time he ripped one of those through the water, I about jumped off the boat. Um, they're they're loud, and but I tell you what, there's nothing. I have seen that's more exciting than seeing a great big peacock bass come up and take one of those uh, wood, wood choppers off the top because it is you, – you want to talk about violent. That is probably one of the most violent takes I've ever seen. And if they miss it the first time, they don't give up. They keep coming back after it. And um, so um, wood choppers they do really well with and then some of the bigger uh, crankbaits uh, – 
they do uh, equally well with. And one of the things that um, is a is a good um, um, conventional uh, lure down there as well is uh, um, oversized uh, jigs, like uh, jigs you would use in saltwater for for some of the saltwater type fishing. Actually, Don, we're coming up here for a break, so. Okay. Um, but I, I had I have to throw this in. Maybe uh, Don, maybe um, Barry should uh, call up Pete Parker and ask him about that propeller fly he has. Yeah. <laughs> well, I can I can see a guy I can see a guy looking through his box. Let's see. Should I go with the 18 inch wood chopper or a number 22 RS2? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, we need to take a, a little break here, but when we come back, we'll talk to um, Barry more about presentation and, and how to get these, these, these big guys on the hook. Flats Times Charter is your sponsor for this segment of our show. Captain Bob Jaspers of Flats Times Charters will introduce you to the Mosquito Lagoon, Indian River, and no motor zone of the Banana River on the east coast of central Florida. Only a short drive from Orlando, You'll sight fish big redfish, spotted sea trout, and black drum, as well as seasonal snook and tarpon. Captain Bob is a lifetime resident of the area, and it shows in his knowledge of the local fish, flora, and fauna. Call Flats Time Charters now and arrange your next memorable adventure. You can reach Captain Bob Jaspers at 321-631-4051. That's 321-631-4051 or go to their website, www.flatstime.com. That's F-L-A-T-S-T-I-M-E.com. Well, you're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Barry Reynolds about fly fishing for peacock bass. If you'd like to ask Barry a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and click on the link below the description of the show that says click here to ask Barry your most important question. We'll receive the question immediately, and we'll try to answer it as soon as possible on the show tonight. Well, Barry, um, let's talk about presentation of these guys. Now, I, I'm, I kind of have this picture in my mind right now that you've got these big flies and you're hurling them out there, and it may, it may not be a targeting situation, but I know you were down there specifically for peacocks, but you, you also said you never knew what you were going to get on. So how do you target them? What are you looking for, or, or can you? you know, absolutely. Um with the big peacocks, what we look for is structure, uh, bottom structure in the river or the lagoons that you're fishing, and that can be uh, typically what we'll find is the bigger fish will tend to hold and cruise right along the edge of that first drop off in about, it can be anywhere from three to seven foot of water. And what they'll do is they'll come up out of those areas and, and herd bait fish and chase them up towards the shallows and, and pin them against the bank. Um, so anywhere where we can find that edge, that definite edge, we like to uh, fan cast along those edges and parallel to those edges um, with with some deeper flies. Now, when they move back up, uh, you know, in shallower water, we can fish some top water for them, and we can even fish top water over open water if these fish are, are feeding near the surface or pushing and herding bait fish. So I usually keep two rods rigged. One with a uh, clipped deer hair diver, like a Dahlberg diver or Uncle Pike fly or something like that, or a big foam-headed uh, popper. And if they're if they're if they're busting bait on the surface, I can you know throw one of those out there and and raise a ruckus and usually get the attention of a fish. But um, when we're not seeing fish and we're just looking at structure and cover, uh, it could be anywhere uh, from flooded trees that we're casting back up to. 
Um, it could be that, like I said, that edge, that first drop off where it rolls from about three foot of water out into about seven foot of water. Uh, any of these sandbar points, you'll see lots of big sandbar points and they'll come out in that real dark black water and it's tea colored out, out in the sand, but you'll, you could, it's very easy to, to see the edge just by looking at the water clarity or the water color because where it rolls off, it goes to black. And, uh, again, so we'll just probe those edges, um, in those, those situations. So points, uh, sandbars, uh, that again, that real distinct edge line, and then another place is if you can find any of these areas where there's some rocky structure in the water, uh, they really relate strong to to rock as well. And um, that's this is basically the four or five key areas that we would look for big peacocks in and, and, and target them specifically in those areas. And then there's other times where, like I said, we'll just be out um, covering basically open water. And um, anytime we can find one of those places, we obviously will slow down and fish those areas a little bit harder and try and cover them from top to bottom. Do you ever sight fishing for them? Uh, part of the time. Sometimes you can see them, but uh, more times than not, you're not going to see them unless, again, they're they're raising hell on the surface and pushing bait fish. Um, occasionally you'll see them sunning themselves. You'll see them sitting just below the surface and be able to cast out to them and get them to eat. And um, other times you can see them protecting their their, their fry. They'll be uh, the male and female usually will stay with the fry until they're um, big enough to go out on their own. And they're highly protective. And and um, if if you see that situation, you can you can you can sight cast to them. But more times than not, you're going to be throwing to areas that should be holding big fish. And again, that's down timber, those points, those sandbars. Uh, any kind of rocky structure you might find along the edge, and it's going to be real scattered. So if you can find some rocky structure, it can be a real hot spot. Well, are, the, are the banks root covered and lots of trees and vegetation hanging over? What, what's that like? <laughs> it depends on the time of year and the water levels. Um, typically, like I said, I like to try and target, um, you know, that, January to the first part of March window, and most of the rivers are at the, probably their lowest point of the season. Um, and uh, you can have just bare banks at that point if the rivers receded enough and they hadn't had much rain during the quote-unquote dry season. Um, you you won't even have that much structure to throw to. Um, and other times when the rivers are just receding, have receded and still holding at, at bank level, you're going to have a tremendous amount of down timber. Uh, you're going to have trees coming, uh, you know, uh, the canopy coming over the river quite a bit, and you're going to have to get really good at casting back up into these areas. The thing that uh, is really important to point out is that if you find an area that's likely to be, uh, that you think should really be holding fish, that you throw your fly up there three or four or five times if necessary, because sometimes it takes that long to get their attention because they could be way down, you know, in, in, in the bottom of that, and it takes them a while to, to, to come out and, and and go after it. So we like to, if I see a, uh, an isolated tree or something, I'll work that really good and make multiple casts to it to try and persuade the fish that hopefully is down there to come out and take a look at the fly. So, so generally you're trying to attract their attention or... Uh, increase their aggressive urges. Are there ever occasions where more subtle presentations have any place at all? I haven't found it. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. <laughs> I mean, they're they're they are an aggressive fish, and um, um, during the heat of the day would be probably the one exception where they can kind of go into a little bit of a lull. And when I when I say that, uh, they'll still feed, and, and you can still get them to eat, but you're going to have to slow your presentation down a little bit and fish over even deeper water. And in those situations, I like to throw uh, again like a, a ten foot or even longer sink tip line with like a clouser half and half that's got the lead dumbbell eyes, throw it out there and send it down and count it down and then fish it back with a slow uh, but steady popping stripping retrieve to kind of get the fly to pop up and then pause it just for a second and let it fall back down. And a lot of times we can catch big peacocks in the middle of the day by by fishing that way. But that's one of the few times that i found that you really have to slow your presentations down for them. Um, other than that, when we're throwing, you know, our typical bait fish patterns, I'm ripping them through the water at a pretty good clip. Uh, you know, I don't think you could strip it too fast for these fish. Are you using a two-handed strip or? No, just a single-handed strip, but it's a long strip and it's and it's it's quick and it's repetitive. It's basically I'll strip, you know, anywhere from 12 to 16 inches of line and and reach back up and, and I'm literally just ripping that as hard as I can and as fast as I can through the water. Um, if you give if it's too slow of a presentation, typically what we'll see is we see these fish come up and flash on the fly but won't eat it. And so the faster you can strip it, obviously, the less opportunity they they have to inspect the fly and tell you what kind of job you did on the last pattern that you tied and go, no, thank you, and swim back down to the bottom. <laughs> so, um, again, it, as a rule of thumb, I like to strip as fast as I can and, um, and keep it very um, methodical in my retrieve. Are there any other different types of presentations that you use? I mean, you had mentioned some top water and uh, this thing with the clouds are half and half during the heat of the day. Uh, right. Anything else specific or is it? Oh, abs- absolutely. Um, you know, sometimes what we'll do is in, in a case where we get water that's right at the tree line or just slightly back into it, uh, we'll throw a big clip deer hair divers uh, back up there and um, we'll pop them through those areas. And then once we clear the tree line, um, we'll go ahead and dive them down and fish them, you know, subsurface at that point. So we can fish it uh, pop up shallow and then fish it uh, streamer style as we get out over deeper water. Do you have weed guards on your flies as a rule down there? Uh, typically, no. Um, uh, very, very few of our flies will actually have a weed guard on them because we're typically, again, fishing during low water periods. And there's not a lot of, or very little, if any, weed growth in, in these river systems. The tannin acid levels in these river systems don't in, don't allow for a lot of weed growth in, in the, the rivers. Uh, your biggest problem is obviously when you're fishing back up into the timber and stuff like that. In the case with the divers, um, yeah, those flies all have weed guards on them because we're throwing back up into that really tight cover. Okay. A couple of patterns that kind of come to mind uh, when you think in terms of big, mean fish might apply to pike up in Canada and Alaska. Mouse patterns on the surface or something like leech or maybe for for South America, a small snake kind of a pattern. Do those have a, have a place or have you tried them at all? We've played around with, uh, it's kind of a, it's a, 
the snake type pattern of big clip deer here um, head and the long rabbit strip tail that might be you know again eight or nine inches long and you kind of snake it through the, the top of the water um, we've had again some success with that but um, I'm not very patient and if I don't get if I don't get a fish uh, interested fairly quick I'll change and uh, I change flies a lot um, as far as clip deer hair mouse patterns, no, you know, I haven't played with them. I would think they, you know, they would work. Here's an aggressive fish. I'm not sure they'd be taking it for a mouse, and instead they might be taking it for a tarantula swimming across the river. Oh. I, I don't know, but um, um, I again, I haven't fished mouse patterns in particular down there, and and tried those type of things. Uh, but I, like I said, I've played around with the snake patterns. And again, uh, like a, a, a salamander, water dog type pattern, we've played around with those and had, I would call it moderate success at best with those. Well, Barry, let's say you actually get one on the hook here. Um, what's their fight like? Do they jump? Do they dive? And what's the best way to fight them? Um, all of the above. Uh, they, they'll spend as much time out of the water as they do in it. Um, every and that's the, the the fun thing about them because every fish is and fights uniquely different. You may get one that jumps a lot and doesn't uh, dive down to any depth, and you may uh, set up on a fish and come tight with them. And the first thing uh, that fish does is head for the bottom and, and wants to bulldog down at the bottom with you. Um, and again, you can catch a fish that you'll get the combination of both of those things going on at once. Uh, I typically find that uh, the, the smaller peacocks tend to to, uh, to jump more. Why the bigger peacocks, um, they may jump once or twice, but they're more prone to go down and bulldog on you. And like I said, I've had a few fish take me 80, 90, 100 yards into my backing. And um, the, the biggest thing with them is learning when to give and when not to give. And, again, if you have a good drag on your reel, that's going to help you a lot. So when one of because it's it's it, it truly is hard to describe the power of these fish because when they when they decide they want to take off if you're not ready they're going to either blow your rod up in your hand where you're standing or bust your leader uh or again separate the the rod from your hand real quick because they're that big and they're that strong i mean they're just a very very powerful fish and uh being able to 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 know when to give them um and relax the pressure on them a little bit is, is crucial. And uh, unfortunately, for the most part, that's trial and error. <laughs> I can attest to it myself. Uh, Tom down in the southwest uh, area in Florida wonders about uh, how, you, how you fight these things effectively without busting your rod. Right. Uh, low rod angles. You don't want to keep your rod tip high. Uh, you want to keep it down to the side and apply side pressure. Um um, and uh, use that side pressure. And obviously the, the fly rod uh, has a lot more fighting capabilities and, and, and can have a lot more staying power if you don't high stick fish, which I'm famous for anyways. But that's a whole different conversation at some other point in time. <laughs> but uh, side angle is the best way to apply pressure to these fish. And, um, you know, and when they want to, when they want to surge and they hit you with that, that power and they want to run, Give it to them, but the minute they back off, apply the power back to them and, and, and lean back on the rod and kind of turn them back coming your way. And usually you're going to go through about three or four of those little power struggles, and then uh, you're going to get them usually close enough for the guides to get them in the net and get them in the boat. 
is there a saltwater fish that uh, fights a lot like a peacock? Um, some of your jacks, um, mm -hmm. snook, things like that are probably fairly similar to what I found with the uh, with the peacocks. Um, it fights more like a saltwater fish or what you would more expect out of a saltwater fish as far as they've got quite a bit of staying power. Um, you know, the fight's not over after one run or two runs. It's three, four, five runs in some cases, and depending on the size of the fish, it can take even longer than that. But, um, you know, um, like I would said, uh, snook and some of your jacks, uh, some of the, the jack family would, would be, I think, similar in fight and uh, pulling power, what you would expect uh, from a peacock bass. So would you say then, Barry, the, the biggest challenge is just um, being ready? I mean, for, <laughs> for anything that's going to happen, uh, and, and, and yeah. don't be taking a nap, right? Well, it's definitely not a place to daydream, that's for sure, um, because you, you, you just never know when that next fish is going to be a really big one. And I can guarantee most people that go down there, are going to get cracks at big fish, and, and their ultimate success is going to depend on them being ready for that fish. And um, um, because uh, in that dark water, like I said, they, they can be very, very hard to spot, if, if not downright impossible to spot, and you'll be stripping in, and you may think you're over 15 foot of water, and you might only be in 6 or 7 foot of water, and you got a big peacock sitting on the bottom. They'll launch themselves up on that fly, so quick and everything happens so quick they move so quick um that uh, it's it's a it's a big element of surprise a lot of times when these things hit and if you're not paying attention or you're not ready usually bad things happen <laughs> well tell us uh, we're running low on time here so I, I definitely want to talk specifically about your trip to brazil um, you said you kind of had a bad week down there with numbers. Um, you want to tell the folks how many? <laughs> you didn't seem too sympathetic when I told you the numbers. <laughs> no, huh? I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, on a typical week down there, depending on the river system that you get on, because some of these river systems are more known for numbers. And, and when I say that, um, uh, they typically will they, they will typically house anywhere from eight anglers up. And on these, uh, the areas that we go to and the camps that we fish with, it is eight anglers in the camp at a week. And the numbers can range anywhere from 900 fish to as many as 2,000 fish in seven days. Oh, and, yeah, and keep in mind that they don't count other species. All they do is count peacock bass. And uh, on our recent trip, there was actually only five of us filming because I had a film crew with us as well. Uh, in uh, six and a half days, we took 971 peacock bass. Uh, and the biggest fish was uh, just a tad under 20 pounds on this trip. So that's how many fishermen? Five fishermen. Five fishermen, mm -hmm. a thousand fish, basically? A thousand, yes. That's 200 Three fish day. for the week of just peacocks. <laughs> just peacocks. And, and, and you probably caught at least that much of other things i suppose too. <laughs> easily we were catching you know arowana every day and piranha and the jacunda and um you know some of these other less sought after fish are just as much fun like the you know the chichora and the baikuda these fish when you hook them i have footage of one fish that i hooked it jumped literally about 15 feet through the air and came into the side of the boat and it was the most amazing thing. And uh, like you say, you just you never know what you're going to catch down there. And they're all a lot of fun to catch. And sometimes we get tend to get too caught up in 
chasing only the big peacocks around and or whatever species you have to be having to be chasing around and forget that uh, you know what we're out there just having fun <laughs> but uh yeah that that would be a slow week 971 fish it's uh, still a good week of fishing <laughs> well yeah it yeah. <laughs> to get spoiled <laughs> i i think we've forgotten to ask uh, when you're using big flies and big catching big aggressive fish what's your not a preference to uh to hook up that fly with that big leader? Um, sometimes it's as, as simple as using just a three-turn clinch knot or um, um, I don't. I play around with so many different knots and most of them don't even have names to try and get, the, especially when we're using the heavy mono, um, uh, you know, like a figure eight loop knot and um, um, knots like that are usually the preferred way. Nine times out of ten, I'm just using a simple quench knot because, uh, like I said, these fish are big and aggressive, and um, the, the the knots, that knot has held the best for us. Okay. I'll, I'll put it that way, that just a simple quench knot, you know, and uh, we just, you don't, you can't do a seven-turn quench knot with, <laughs> right. with 30 or 40-pound saltwater mono. You have to cut it down and do like a four or five max turns to go back through. We've, we've had some questions about the trip you've made, uh, kind of in terms of the travel. Uh, David Gower in, in Kentucky wonders, uh, what's the best way to get down, uh, say, to Brazil or, or into South and Central America for a trip like this? Sure. Well, it's, it's a long planning process. You, you have to have a valid passport. You have to have a visa to enter Brazil. Um, so those are the first two things you got to deal with, uh, not only a passport, but you have to get a visitor's visa, um, and those things all take time. So, again, you have to allow yourself plenty of time to plan that trip from that aspect. Uh, obviously, you're, you're also traveling into a region where malaria and yellow fever and things like that are of concern, so you have to get your, your, your proper immunization shots. And typically what we get when we go down there is um, you get your yellow fever vaccine, you get a typhoid, um, and then uh, tetanus, and then um, uh, hepatitis um, shots, and then you uh, take malaria pills when you go down there as well. And I've been going so much, I think I'm caught up for the next five years. I don't think I have to go back and see anybody other than get malaria pills before I go down each time. But I think the thing that surprises most people is the lack of bugs down there. They're just um, These rivers are so high in tannin acid levels that the, the bug life on the river itself is, is pretty minute, and we rarely have any issues. I think I've seen one mosquito down there in the six trips that I've done in the recent years down there. So they're just... Um, bugs are not a big issue. Um, the other thing, like I said, that's real important in their uh, trip planning would be to, to decide um, how comfortable do they want to be. Do they want to stay in a land-based lodge where you have all the amenities like you have back at home, or, or do you want to rough it a little more and maybe live off a houseboat for a week? Or if you want to rough it, and, and I say rough it, and I'll tell you a little bit about the camps that we stay at, a little more and stay in these tent camps. And these mobile tent camps are wonderful because they can move every day if they need to to new fishing grounds. And uh, uh, the tents are basically, they're about 12 by 15. They're built on pontoons. And um, you have a shower in, in the tent. You have a left lavatory in the, in the tent. And uh, a couple years ago, they put air, air conditioning into the tents. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's real rough. 
I make it sound rough, but it's, it's not too rough. It's, well, you uh, have to actually, watch out where, when you take a nightly walk or something. You have to be careful, though, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you, you don't want to get... Right? You, you got to be careful. Sometimes there's there's quite a few caiman around. It just depends on the river system you are you're on. And uh, I have a lot of people ask me, well, you know, are, aren't you afraid of going down there? And I said, afraid of what? And uh, it's a very uh, politically uh, politically stable environment. Uh, they're very warm and friendly uh, towards uh, towards Americans and and all visitors as far as that goes. I've not had any problems whatsoever on any of my trips going down there. Uh, from that standpoint, and um, uh, just just a wonderful place to go and visit, and the people are warm and friendly, and we we meet a lot of the locals that actually live and sustain off the river itself along the way, and found them to be uh, very warm and receptive as well, which you know might surprise some people. But uh, we bar we bartered with uh, a small um, a small village to go in and fish their lagoon this year, and it cost us a six-pack of Coke and a pint of gas to go in and fish their lagoon for the day. So, well, you know, it's it's a, it's an amazing place. It really is, and, and um, uh, you know, uh, well worth the trip down there. So we've got to wrap else. things up here. We're, we're to the end here. But I, one more question. You can just keep it simple. Give us sure. a, a, a price range of what, what it costs a guy or a gal to go down there for a week. Uh, anywhere from 3500 to as much as $5,500. Um, airfare obviously plays a, a big big part of that, but uh, on average, uh, seven, six or seven days stay is going to cost you about $3,500 plus your airfare. So it's not much different than going to Alaska in many cases, no, depending it, on your accommodations. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people, they think things like this are very exotic, but... You know, they don't hesitate to go to Alaska, but but a lot of these other places are not that expensive. When you know, if if, if you're in that range of three to five thousand, that kind of thing. Right. Absolutely. It's it's very reasonable considering you know how far and how remote you're going, and uh, it's worth every penny. Well, terrific. Let's um let's close things up here. We're going to be drawing for one year subscription to Fly Fusion Magazine and a three year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. So. Stay tuned to see if you win. Attention Montanans. Senate Bill 78 is currently under consideration in the Montana State Legislature. This is a compromise bill which allows ranchers and landowners to fence across public easements to bridge abutments while assuring that access to the public waters is maintained with gates or stiles. Control of livestock by legalizing fencing across the road easement is provided and the public can still access the streams, which in Montana are public property up to the high water mark. In that regard, be a good neighbor. Respect the landowner's rights by staying below the high water mark on the streams in Montana. Contact your state legislators and tell them you support Senate Bill 78. Tell them you support this legislation because it benefits all parties involved with a common-sense compromise, and ranchers would no longer risk legal action by unlawfully placing fences on public easements. Senate Bill 78, it makes good sense for Montana. From our events calendar, we see on April 21st and 20th, the Snake River Cutthroats chapter of the Federation of Fly Fishers and Trout Unlimited presents their 14th annual East Idaho Fly Tying and Fishing Expo in Idaho Falls. Admission is free and 145 expert tires will be demonstrating their skills during five sessions. 
You can sign up for clinics and workshops in various aspects of fly tying, casting, and there are also clinics for youth and women. Last year's ladies' clinic sold out, so they've expanded to two sessions this year. Register for the banquet on Saturday evening, which will feature raffles and auctions, and the honored guest and featured speaker will be Bud Lilly. Don't miss this outstanding event, widely regarded as one of the premier fly tying events in the Mountain West each year. Go to the Global Events Calendar. The link is near the bottom of each page on our website. Look under Idaho for more information. Fly Shops and Clubs, you can list all your fly fishing related events on our Global Events Calendar. It's free. You do it yourself. Go to the Events Calendar and get started. We'll be highlighting one event from the calendar on each of our shows. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You'll find a link on our homepage in Barry's section on tonight's show, which says, uh, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd surely appreciate it. Well, now it's time to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fusion magazine, a wonderful, uh, colorful magazine that uh, both Don and I enjoy every every quarter. And uh, the winner, I pressed the magic button here. By the way, if you haven't registered yet, it's too late. Register next time so you're sure to get in the mix for these, these great prizes. I'm going to pick the winner for that one-year subscription, and that would be, okay, looks like we've got Joseph Egri. Joseph Egri in Colorado. Congratulations, so Joseph. Winner for the, the one-year subscription to Five Fusion Magazine. So congratulations, and let me uh, do this one more time. And this will be for a three-year membership to the Federation of Fly Fishers. And that's Ted Christie in Colorado, Ted Christie. Wow. So congratulations, sure. gentlemen, both from Colorado. And we've got a big listenership in Colorado, so that's probably why we get more people here yeah, than anywhere that's else. That's unusual. I think that's the first time we've ever had them go to one place. Yeah, huh. yeah. Well, Barry, uh, gosh, uh, thanks again for spending some time with us tonight. Uh, I'll tell you, I, I think uh, everything you've described about the peacock bass is exciting. And, uh, you know, when you went into the one description about how if you're, if you're not on your guard, they can, they can really uh, catch you by surprise and you, you'll, you forget how to cast and how to uh, strike and everything else. I'll bet the one thing you don't forget is how to wet your pants. <laughs> no, that's always a, a definite option. <laughs> well, thanks again, uh, Barry. And folks, on our net, next broadcast, we'll be on April 18th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, we're going to interview Jim McLennan, and our topic for the show will be fly fishing Alberta's famous Bow River. Guess, guess what's in the Bow River? Big bows. And yeah. Jim McLennan, one of the first guides on the Bow River, uh, knows what makes this river tick. He literally wrote the book, Blue Ribbon Bow, on the river, which has served as a resource for many in successfully dealing with the complexities of this famed stream. Bring on your questions about seasons, hatches, accesses, guides, accommodations, travel, and more. We would like to thank the R.L. Winston Rod Company, Front Range Anglers, Power Fibers Online Magazine, and Flats Time Charters for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. And feel free to explore the other areas of our site, like the events calendar, the new books area, and the new DVD areas. So thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing.